Well, good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community. Whether you're here or watching online, I invite you to open up God's Word. We have been singing, as it were, a theology of wealth. What does, what does the Bible see as riches, as wealth, as prosperity? And we've been singing a little bit of the theology of that, even in setting us up for the message today. This will not be the first time uh, that James brings up this issue of riches and those that are wealthy and the contrast that we'll talk about today. But we do want to get it started here. And so, as you stand to your feet, let us read God's Word together. We're going to be looking at James 1, verses 9 to 11. James 1, beginning at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. So Lord, teach us. As Lord, as we read this text, if... We have any sense of what is going on all over the world. We know that we ourselves are the wealthy. And so, Lord, how do we live by faith? No matter our situation, Lord, this is what we need to understand today. And so, we thank you for opening up your treasury, your very word of God, and pouring out for us that which we need. That which will not only fill our cup, but run over so that it may spill on those that we love and those that we work and minister to every day. Lord, we need, as we're about to read, not only the mind of Christ, but we need to be able to think as spiritual people about spiritual things. Give us that mind, God, we pray. Give us your wisdom that you told us that we could ask for and that you would give it to us. We pray, Lord, as one people in faith for that wisdom so that we can understand it and apply it and rejoice in the midst of tribulation no matter what it brings. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a couple of principles that I'm sure you are aware of, but it's not. It's always good to be reminded we all come into this world and we all leave this world the same way with absolutely nothing. We all have an eternity that we're investing in. And the only way you can invest in the eternity you're headed for is the life that we live today. It's not salvation by works, by the way. That's just the Bible. We all have one life. And the Lord's not going to tell you how long your span is. We are responsible with this one life then to live for the advancement of God's kingdom. There is in the Bible this constant picture of something greater that's coming. It is what I call the great reversal. It is best in a couple of weeks. Well, actually next week we'll, we'll begin a little Easter series that will take us to Easter. But Easter, we're aware of this. The darkness of Good Friday brings about the sunrise of Easter morning. There is a great reversal. The Bible is all about it. The rich become poor. The first becomes last. The rich 
And the poor swift, the, the dead is brought to life. The weak become strong. When Christ returns, there will be in that instant a great reversal to where everything that people held so precious in this life will be gone and that which Christ has told us will last for eternity will be precious. That is the great reversal and it's coming and we have glimpses of it in the world that we live today. This is hard to talk about the poor and the rich and prosperity and some things that are hard for us are actually good and it reminds me of a passage that we often have to go to. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 is a good reminder. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly, they're foolishness. Good word to remember for the sermon a little bit later. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who understands the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so biblical wisdom today, our main point, biblical wisdom teaches us that a radical faith invests its life on lasting spiritual wealth rather than stockpiling temporal physical wealth. There is a debate in this passage whether the, the poor and the rich is one a believer and one is not a believer. I am taking the position today that both of these are believers. I hope it is, it is able for you to be wealthy and be a believer because we are among the wealthiest of the world. And if not, we are all in big trouble. So I, I am taking this text today. He's gonna, James is going to have plenty to say about the, how the wealthy oppress the poor. That there are two believers. One is poor and one is wealthy. Here's the question. How are they both supposed to live by faith? Is one destined for joy and the other misery? Can they only experience joy or spiritual wealth in the next life? So I want us to see first the poorest man of faith is exalted. The poorest man of faith is exalted. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. There's just like irony in that. The lowly brother boasting in his exaltation. This is the reality. Remember the first message. These folks, by and large, as a whole, were poor. But there's a few that were wealthy. Maybe they were merchants, traders, we don't know. James reminds us that irregardless of which side you're sitting on economically, that trials have a way of leveling the field anyway. I was watching, um, you know, seeing the news, one of the famous actors that was, that's been acting for years had to retire this week because he, had, he was diagnosed with a disease that affects the way he communicates. You see, it doesn't matter how many millions he had. He had something blow in his life just like blows in mine. Or the homeless guy on the street. Trials have that way of making us realize that all of our stuff can't fix some things in life. This is the situation that these folks were in. 
If, if you want to, you can look with me in Acts 11. Acts 11, verse 28, gives us a little bit of context of what's going on here. In Acts 11, even look at verse 27. Acts 11, 27. Now in, the days, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. There was a famine. It's going to get worse. By the way, this is simply history. Both Josephus, the Jewish historian, and the Roman historian both tells during Claudius of a great famine that was so bad that people were dying of starvation and the Romans had to go away and send to other countries for help. This was a bad time. This wasn't just the gas prices are high. This is people are dying because they're hungry bad. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4, listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom are credited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This, for me, this is what hit me when I read this week. That the early church did not have a sense of competition amongst pastors and churches. We didn't steal each other's people, and we didn't act like we were somehow playing on two teams against each other. Our worship, do you understand that? Their worship service involved helping other churches that were suffering. That was their spiritual act of worship. They were in need. The church was just rallying, but this is physical poverty. James is using no metaphor simply of something that was spiritual. They were hurting, and here's what we've already learned. There's a benefit to poverty. <laughs> and that, boy, you need a spiritual mind to understand that, don't you? A benefit to poverty? He's already told us, but let's remember... Because he's already told us that trials, which is the one main trial they were under, is not only they have been persecuted, but they were poverty-stricken. It deepens their faith. Let me just read Romans 5.3. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Notice, the, notice this chain here. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, our endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. It deepens our faith, and it makes us, poverty has a way of making us humble. The, the Bible makes a close connection between the reality of a physical poverty and spiritual humility. It, it connects those things. Isaiah 66, verses 1 to 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah's overall message of his book is don't trust in people and don't even trust in yourself, but trust in Yahweh because he is all-powerful and never changes. Poverty makes you realize this in a way that prosperity has no ability. It makes you realize your need. And what it makes us realize is our inability. The reason we have such poor theology and as Americans is because we're so prosperous. And we think we have the ability to choose God and to choose this and to choose that. And we hadn't realized how depraved we really are. Poverty has a way of helping us understand. Physical points to the spiritual. Spiritual is greater That's why the Beatitude said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a boasting here. You see it in verse 9? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What in the world? What is a man who who don't even have enough to put food on his table, what has he got to boast about? It's a good question. Well, let's just look at some of these words. You see the word lowly there? It means poor. Humble, undistinguished, common. Uh, A lowly person you just wouldn't notice. Until we started talking about a lot of homeless people, most of us didn't even see them. They're common. They're unnoticeable. They're sitting over there in the corner outside the grocery store where they always sit. They're lowly. Look at the, the word boast can mean either something negative or something positive. It can mean arrogance. It can also mean a joy that celebrates when someone values what God values. You need to boast in that. To boast when we make much of Christ. It's what our worship really is. It's a boasting. How do we understand this? Well, I think Paul really comes in to help us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you know this passage is about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And though we all like to suppose what that is, we really don't know. <laughs> if you ever worked around people a lot, you sit there going, it could as well have been somebody as something in his physical body. We really don't know. All we know is he wanted rid of it. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. What did God say? I think this might help us understand how do we boast in our poverty. God told him, though he prayed for him to remove whatever was wrong, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. And here it is. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what James is saying. He's saying the poor must realize something in the midst of their situation. They must realize their identity now. Their identity now with the mind of Christ is exalted. Now this word exalted is an important word. It speaks of Christ's ascension to the right hand of God. What is exalted? He's telling them they have some 
kingdom stuff going on in their life that their bank account doesn't reflect. Kingdom wealth. James is going to come back to this. Just, let's just glimpse at it. James 2, verse 5. Look at what he says. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? There again, there's that reversal. Do you see it? They have kingdom wealth. That is because of their kingdom status. All of us here on this earth are not primarily in around here Americans. We simply have our, as it were, our resident green card. Because Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we wait for the Lord's return. Our citizenship is there. We have a different citizenship. Our status then is measured by that. Not our present situation. Listen to this. Oh, I love this. And yes, we're, we're going to preach through Ephesians. Just got to get to it. Can't preach but through one book at a time. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. You see that reversal? Death to life. Verse 6. And listen. Listen to what he says. This is present. This is not future. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this status. For through Him, we both, that is, Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, male or female, poor or rich, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are family. That's who you are. And it doesn't change depending on how many zeros come on your W-2. That's good news. I can take that gospel to anywhere in the world. And it's true. And it gives them hope. We have a kingdom status because we have a kingdom inheritance. Ephesians 1, still in Ephesians, just back up a chapter. Verse 16, uh, verse 17, says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the work of His great might? Verse 20. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places. Our status is measured by the fact that we are in Christ and He is at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 3.21 says that we look forward to these lowly bodies being transformed like His glorious body. There is kingdom inheritance. There's kingdom status. There's also kingdom compensation. I'm not going to go there 
and read it. You know this. Matthew 25 says there's coming a day when the Lord returns, when he will separate the sheep and the goats. Matthew 7 says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be on, that, on the right side. There is coming a day, the reward of the faithful. And the reward, so to speak, of the unfaithful. James is just teaching us what he learned from the Lord when when he starts to teach us that faith without works is dead. Isn't that what we see in Matthew 25? Just read it. Well, the Lord says, when I was sick, when I was poor, when I was in need, you helped me. We said, when did that happen? He said, when you saw the least of these and did it, you did it to me. That's your reward. You see how that's going to flip? How that's going to reverse one day? matters how we live. The poorest man must boast in his identity in Christ and understanding no matter what we have or don't have, when we live by faith, it is producing an eternal weight of glory that we will get when we get there. At the same time, the wealthiest man of faith is going to be humbled This is the problem of prosperity. Prosperity comes with problems, tendencies. And one of the main ones the Bible speaks a lot of is pride and humility. What prosperity produces is a lack of humility. So I chose just one place of all the places we could go in Luke. And so for the rest of the message, I'd like for you to hold your place not only in James but also in Luke 12. I think this is just a good picture of the rich. Basically, Jesus teaching first what James then is teaching us now. Let me just read part of this. Just get the picture in your mind. So Jesus being the master teacher deals with a question that comes to him. He, he answers it. And then he says, let me tell you a story. He gives a parable, gives him an illustration that help him understand. So let's see what he says. Someone in the crowd, Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, I can hear this. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? Mm. Now, if you've lived any length of time at all, you've already heard this situation play out. Somebody dies in the family. Come on, you got somebody in the family that did this. I didn't get what I think I deserved. And it's a problem. Whole family is split up because all all Harry didn't get what he thinks that he got a good shake of something that he didn't deserve any of it anyway. Right? This is the question. This is the question that comes to Jesus. I I didn't get what I deserved. Jesus. Verse 15. Jesus said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's the the truth he wants to teach. You get that? And so he told him a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a card they hand out to you when they're trying to get you to plan for your retirement, doesn't it? Work hard. You've earned it. Enjoy it. Wealthy people have a problem, you see. You see this problem? It's really hard to humble yourself when everything's so good. Matter of fact, if you're reading the Bible, it's the same here. People think, God's just rewarding me. All this wealth is God's blessing in my life. and Oh my goodness. I hear one popular guy on TV, he likes, they like to put him on the, on the feeds and stuff all the time. He's always talking about, if you want to be wealthy, you know, you need to trust God and you need to do this, you need to do this. He never mentions the problem that he has that everybody who's wealthy has. We think too highly of ourselves when the poor oftentimes think too lowly. The gospel then is the great leveler because we all stand in need of grace. You could think of it this way. Pride has two sides. Self-pity and self-sufficiency. Self-pity is what poor struggles with. Self-sufficiency is what the prosperous struggle with. Both of them are a problem. There is a problem of prosperity because it brings a lack of struggling. The worst thing that happened in American history is when the World War II parents thought they needed to make sure their kids didn't struggle like they did. And all they did, and all we've reaped the whirlwind. You see, Proverbs 8, 1811, this is the New Living Translation. It says, the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. A high wall of safety, not only that I built for myself, but I built it for my children so that they won't have to struggle the way I did. And what we fail to understand is there is a problem with prosperity because it produces a lack of struggling. You see, the rich don't have to work to survive. Now, listen to me. They work. We're going to talk about that. They work. They work hard. But they don't work to try to put a piece of bread on the table so the family can eat that night. They don't have to work because they're not really sure whether they can fill their prescription or not. Here's why the wealthy work. They work to amass wealth. They work to preserve wealth. And they work to multiply that. And listen, you buy into that. Most of us all are right now. We're in the amassing phase. And you think you can amass it and you won't get sucked into the vortex of preserving and multiplying. You are deceived. There is a danger. And if we're not aware of it, we will fall into it. Prosperity has a dulling effect on our faith. This is what the Bible teaches us. It, is, it is naturally dulls your blade, the Word of God in your life. It's because if we have plenty, we can rest even in difficult times in our comfort and in our security. Every time I think about something like this, I think about that guy in that motel room when we were in Congo. We, the first we, there, we would ride downtown Kinshasa, and 
There was a boy who stood out there every day with a, with a basket of bread on his head. He just hollered. He drove, us, he drove us insane. He would never shut up. He was just before, before daylight. Blah, 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 All day long, all day long with that basket on his head. After dark, he's still out there with a basket on his head, hollering, drives us crazy. The, law, the lawyer told us he's probably the only one that works in his family. He stands out there with that bread on his head to try to sell enough enough bread to buy something for his family. He's probably got a house full of people that he needs to feed and he's the only one that's got a job. Well, that puts it into perspective. This is the contrast. By the way, I looked that up. 60 million Congolese, 73% of them live on a dollar and 90 cent or less a day. So when we start thinking that we're really not prosperous, not wealthy, we need to take a little snapshot of the way most of the people have to live. Here's the truth. Look at verse, if you still got Luke 12, look at verse 19. I love this. I talk to myself too. I think you really got a problem if you don't talk to yourself. I mean, I got to, sometimes, you know, I got to talk out loud to myself just to keep myself straight. He said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for plenty. So just, man, man, you got it. You got it made. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. Enjoy life. Here's his point. A lack of struggling ruins your character. My little word of advice to parents. Don't fix all your children's problems and ruin their character in the long term. Struggling's God's design. Let them struggle. There's a trap. Trap of prosperity. Not only a problem, there's a trap. I hope you saw it already. Verse 16 in Luke 12. I need bigger barns. The ones I got is not enough. I'm not holding it. It looks, it looks like my going to my office right now. I got books stacked up because I don't have enough bookshelves. Right, brother? I need more bookshelves. Bigger ones to take up the whole wall so I can fill them up. And then I'll be happy. I'm being sarcastic. But to some degree, that's what he's that's what you can get tra- trapped into. I need bigger barns. I need it. I must have it. What is he doing? I amassed it. Now I've got to preserve it. I've got to multiply it. There's an illusion here. Because they do not tell you about what it's going to cost you to make it and what it's going to cost you to keep it. It's a cost. It's a trap. But let me explain something. Maybe a few years ago, I wouldn't have had to say in a sermon. There's two faces of the American dream right now. It, it doesn't look like all the time the 50-year-old who worked hard and now he's on a yacht enjoying the rest of his life, right? used to be the picture. You know, if you work hard, you can have a big boat, you can live on, you know, wherever you wanted to live. Now it's, there's another face. It is this. Young people have embraced it. We just need to get rid of everything. Simple living, we call it. Just get me a piece of ground somewhere, maybe in Colorado, where we all think about living sometimes. When we get tired of people, let's go live out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado or somewhere. Right? You know, except people who've lived in Colorado, right? That's, there's a point. Just live simply. Get rid of everything. Don't need anything. I'm just going to go out. These TV programs are all over the TV right now. This simple living, 
listen to what they say. They got the same dream. I want to live life my way. I'm going to get, it's the same thing, amass it greatly or get rid of it all. Self-sufficiency is the goal. My autonomy, myself, me making much of me, me living my life my way. Take either side of that coin. When self-sufficiency is the goal, dependency on the Lord is not. So James is warning both, really. The poor must focus on their spiritual wealth. The wealthy must focus more on their spiritual poverty. <laughs> Here's the, what his point is. If you invest in this worldly way of thinking, if you get into that hamster wheel, there's no lasting return. Let's look at what he says. Luke 12 again, verse 20. But God said to him, isn't that what really matters? What God says. But God said to him, fool. Mm. <laughs> you can't make that sound any better. It don't sound good because it's not. A fool is a person who is not wise and lacks good judgment. He said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. James is not saying there's something wrong with being rich. It's not his point. It's not the Bible's point. But it has a lot of straight things to say about riches because of its problems and because of its traps. He's saying what eternally matters is your attitude towards wealth and prosperity. We have to understand the fleeting nature of life, the important and urgency of the mission of God in our life, and as Ephesians say, to redeem the time because the day is evil. Because if we don't, we will find ourselves un, even unmeaning to worshiping the world and treasuring what they treasure because we get sucked into something that we've got to now maintain it and we've got to keep it. There's a high cost to the wasted life. And a wasted life is to amass and to keep or to get rid of it all. Just so that I can live the life I want to live for me. Here's the question. Three days after your death, What's all of this that we're consuming ourselves with going to mean? Three days after your death, and I'm doing your funeral, the things that are eternally going to matter, brothers and sisters, are the people sitting in the congregation that you've lived the kingdom out in their life. We need to realize some things. The rich do. Verses 10 now, back to James. Verse 10, second half of verse 10 says this, Because like a flower of grass, he, the rich, will pass away. Verse 11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flowers fall and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We must realize that our wealth is fading Isaiah 40, verse 6 says, a voice cries, voice says, cry, 
And I said, what shall I cry? All, fla- all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You see, Israel hoped in its kings and its leaders, its natural resources, and even itself. And they all failed. And this is why the Bible says in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah said I died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. What's the point? King's dead. God's not. He's still right where he always was, sitting on his throne. Trust him. Follow him. His word will never fade. What he has promised us in eternity will come to pass. This fading away is this picture of a beautiful flower in the desert that is beautiful in the morning as the dew hits. But as soon as the sun gets up and the scorching wind of the desert blows, it's gone. As quick as it comes. He describes that as a, as a frenzied business wealthy person in the midst of all they're pursuing and they're maintaining and they're keeping that all of a sudden... This is the picture. James is reminding us that the rich one day will forfeit all of their material possessions. And the great reversal will happen. 1 Corinthians 7 says it this way. The whole world, the whole world in its present form, passing away. Not just the rich man. Had a guy who lived behind us spent his whole life having land, amassing land behind us. It's a huge amount of land. Me and Daddy's been back there on it back when we were both younger. It's just beautiful land. He could hunt, do all this kind of stuff on it. But one day, you see, his life is required of him just like it is us. I ask you, what do you think his children did with all that land that was so precious to him? Turned it into a housing development what they did with it what's the point you spend your life amassing anything and in the next generation so what really matters the wealth these wealth will fade away they need to realize that they also need that they need humility and faith that is their prosperity must always be carried with them under the umbrella of their humility in Christ. They must hold this as, as precious grace, as even things that have some danger to it. But they are stewards of it. It's not belongs to them anyway. They must realize that Jesus Christ came and was despised and rejected of men. He didn't have a place to lay His head. He gave up everything so that we might be saved. And He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And He's coming in power and glory one day. And when He does, everything that the world says is precious will be worthless. And everything that the world says is worthless will be precious. And we must invest in that. So that's the question. What are you investing in? What are we investing our life in? We don't know how long our life will be. I'm not trying to scare you. Just telling you what the Bible says. I love the book. If you hadn't read it, it's impacted me here 
though I couldn't find my book. I think I gave that book away to people to read so many times I eventually lost it. But it was John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. If you have never read it, I would recommend it. It marked me and warned me of this. Philippians 1.20. We know this verse. It's, Paul says, from prison. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that the full courage now and always, here's the, here's the point, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So listen this morning. I think it's on the screen. Just my summary here of the so what. The purpose of life is to, is to glory in the grace of Jesus Christ by living my life to make much of Christ, whether by riches or by poverty, whether by life or by death, whether by my cancer or my healing, only to make much of Christ, only to know Him and to make Him known. That's the purpose of life. That's what we must invest in. The, the Bible says one of my favorite verses this is the New Living Translation. Matthew 6.33 Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and He will give you everything you need. Isn't that simple and yet profoundly hard in the age in which we live? Seek God's kingdom. That's His rule and His reign in this world and do what He says. Here's my question for you. We can live our lives in our backyards playing with our toys. There's people going to hell, brothers and sisters. And we got one life to live. We must put ourselves in the pathway of them. And you must leverage everything God has ever given you so that they may know Christ. That is the purpose of your life. When you stand three days after your death, the people that are sitting there are going to be either testifying he was a good golfer he really liked to fish. He was a nice guy. Well, they'll be saying, that woman helped me follow Christ. She chased me when I didn't want to be found. She loved me when nobody else would love me. She never patronized me. She poured her life into me. She gave me my, her life and the gospel. That's what you want somebody to testify three days after you're dead. They're not going to care about how big you're your fields were, how big your business was. They're not going to care that you have a library named after you. They're going to care whether you helped them know Christ. This is the Great Commission. Help people follow Jesus and do what Jesus says. and He'll take care of the rest. Invest in that, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we hear your warnings today for us as those who struggle in some ways but don't struggle near as much as many people all over in the world and yet, Lord, we have the same promises. No matter what we have or don't have, no matter what we're struggling or not struggling with, we can all know Christ we can have as our greatest treasure in life to know you. And so, Lord, we here testify today to our gratefulness by how now we come and respond through our worship now 
and through our worship when we leave. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives would be a pleasing aroma to you. Oh, God, I pray for every person that can hear me today that they would never hear you say, fool. But that may hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. Inherit the kingdom of God. Lord, that's our desire. And so now, Lord, we come back to the basics as we do every time where we come to the tables. We come to the tables to remember your son. And he is enough. He's enough for any person in the world. He's enough for that guy that I love, but he he won't let me love him. He's enough for him, God. We have people in our lives, Lord, and in our hearts right now, and we're weeping for their souls that they might know you. And Lord, there is just a limit to what we can do. We need your spirit to invade their lives. So that they can make much of you. Use us, we pray. So now, Lord, we we choose to worship you from anything else that we could be doing. To lay our offerings on the table. To receive the bread and the cup. And to sing the praises of your name. Enjoy your people, God. As we enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen.